Right, good to see you and uh, good to be here for another topic evening uh, on a subject tonight that is one that uh, I particularly love and uh, have uh, been reading about, studying about for many years. It's something that from time to time we hear mentioned when uh, in prayer meetings um, uh, and so on. And it's the subject of revival. I wanted to talk about really what it is. It's a word, as I say, that we hear. Sometimes it's a, a word that is used in connection with meetings that are creating a stir. Normally in North America, uh, we hear about a revival um, and people pray for revival. The question is, what is it? What's it all about? What are we praying for? And more particularly, what would the answer to our prayers actually look like? What, what is this thing called revival that seems to excite some um, and others may be uh, less excited because they don't really know quite what we're talking about? So that's our subject, and uh, I hope we'll bring not only some clarity to it, but also maybe a bit of appetite uh, for this to say, this is what we really long for. But first of all, as we come into uh, looking at it, we need to understand that the word revival is used in more than one way. In fact, it's used in two totally different ways, either side of the Atlantic. In North America, the word revival tends to be used nowadays uh, to mean a series of evangelistic meetings, a series of healing meetings. So it's, it's talking about events that have been planned. On this side of the Atlantic, here in the United Kingdom, it is used to refer to some unusual awakening of life, a new effectiveness in the church in a specific area. So in North America, they hold a revival. Here, a revival happens. In North America, they plan for a revival. Here, we pray for a revival. So it's the same word, but two very distinct meanings. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying it is used in two different ways. And what we're talking about tonight, uh, because we are here in the British Isles, we are talking about the word with the British meaning. In other words, we're talking uh, about something that happens, something that can't be planned, something that God does in response to prayer. And we're saying it, using it in that sense, not just because we want to be narrowly kind of nationalistic, but because when the concept arises in Scripture, it's, it's, with that, uh, it's in that sense. Uh, and it's uh, with that meaning that the word has been used historically. It's only in relatively recent years in North America that the, the word has been changed to refer to a series of meetings that are planned. Now, the word revival isn't actually found in the Bible, although the word revive certainly is. For example, Psalm 85 We'll look at some examples of prayer for revival and examples of what we could well term revival in Scripture. Then we'll move on to see what lessons we learn out of that and what has happened in more recent history. So in Psalm 85, 
The psalmist prays, uh, you showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob and so on. And then it says, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So there's the prayer. Will you not revive us again? The prayer is for God's anger to pass away. Uh, It's will you prolong your anger through all generations? Uh, They're living through a time when it looks like God has turned his face away. And the prayer is, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice? So some elements there. A time of difficulty, a prayer for revival, and the concept that when revival comes, it will be associated with rejoicing. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The prophet Habakkuk also prayed, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Again, there's a, we see there a, a, a remembering of what's happened in the past. There's an, a present awareness of what seems to be God's wrath and a cry We want what's happened in the past to be renewed in our day. In wrath, remember mercy. And then that prayer is answered. And in the next verse, it just simply says, God came. So the prayer is, I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came. And in many ways, those last two words really sum up the meaning of revival. Revival is God coming. God came. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 63 can also be found praying for revival. Isaiah 63 verse 15 through to Isaiah 64. I won't read it all, just pick out some verses. He prays, look down from heaven See from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our father. Though Abraham doesn't know us, or Israel acknowledges you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we don't revere you? Return. For the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while, your people possessed your holy place. But now, our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains would tremble before you. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Another heartfelt prayer, remembering how it has been. Now it's a time of shame, says your enemies have trampled your sanctuary. It's like it's all over. We can remember what it used to be like, not like it anymore. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. A prayer for revival. So in all of those, and we could look at others, the people are remembering how it has been. 
I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. They're remembering things that God has done, crying to God that it will happen again. So what kind of things are they remembering? Well, there are examples in the Old Testament of what we could well call revival. And if we look at them, we can maybe get some sense of, of what happens in 2 Chronicles, for example. 2 Chronicles 15. We read of a king, King Asa. And uh, in 2 Chronicles 15, verse 1, the story begins. And again, I'll just pick out bits and pieces. But in 2 Chronicles 15, 1, it says, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Oded. He went to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So there's a, a particular promise to Asa. The Lord is with you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. So Asa's received that promise. And then it goes on to speak of the, the context uh, in which Asa is living. We, uh, the state of things in the nation. It says, in those days, it was not safe to travel about. For the inhabitants, all the inhabitants of the land were in great turmoil. One nation was being crushed by another and one city by another because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. So there's a time of great need, but a word to this man, King Asa, the Lord is with you. And then the word comes to Asa, but as for you, be strong and do not give up for your work will be rewarded. So great promises. And then Asa, it says, when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. And so he gets into action. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns he had captured in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. Then... He assembled all Judah and Benjamin and the people from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon, who had settled among them, for large numbers had come over to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was, the Lord his God was with him. They assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. At that time, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 head of cattle, 7,000 sheep, and goats from the plunder they had brought back. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and soul. They took an oath to the Lord with loud acclamation, with shouting and with trumpets and horns. All Judah rejoiced about the oath because they had sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly, and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Time then of terrible decline in the nation. God comes to this man with a promise. He begins to serve God and to sort things out. And then there's this massive move in the nation. This phenomenal time of sacrifice and rejoicing. And something that's happened in their hearts. It says, all Judah rejoiced about the oath because they had sworn it wholeheartedly. It's like a sudden popular move that turns everyone towards God. 
guess that's the kind of thing that causes them to say, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. I've heard of what happened. Then you move on a bit in 2 Chronicles, and there are several stories like this. In 2 Chronicles 29, verses 35 and 36, it's talking about what happened in Hezekiah's reign. Again, things have gone wrong. Hezekiah seeks God. And uh, again, a great time of uh, God moving in the nation. In 2 Chronicles 29, um, verse 35, it says there, there were burnt offerings in abundance together with the fat of the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings that accompanied the burnt offerings. So the service of the temple of the Lord was reestablished. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. Again, another element of revival, something happening suddenly. And really, you need to read the whole story. I'm only just picking out the conclusion of it there. But a a massive turnaround, everyone suddenly bringing the offerings to God. They should always have uh, have been bringing, but they hadn't done. They've been neglecting God. Suddenly, things turn around, and it is sudden. They rejoice because it's happened so quickly. God has turned it in a short space of time. A dramatic change of heart that affects the whole nation and brings great joy. Last example from Chronicles in 2 Chronicles 34 and 2 Chronicles 35. A young king, Josiah. Hezekiah was followed by two evil kings, and then we get to Josiah. What we see there, then, is that all revivals do eventually come to an end. God had worked remarkably through Hezekiah, But it doesn't last. And then there's a time again of turning away from God. And then this young man, Josiah, is made king. And he sets about removing all the symbols of idolatry that have been allowed to uh, be introduced into the worship of the nation. And as he's sorting things out, removing all the idols and cleansing God's house... The book of God's law is found. It had been forgotten about. And as Josiah hears the law of God read, he is devastated. And he arranges then for it to be read to all the people. And everyone then hears the word of the Lord. That leads to remarkable change. An incredible Passover is then celebrated. You read about it in 2 Chronicles 35. Again, we can't read the whole story, but it speaks about the the, the offerings that are brought, the musicians that are there, and uh, just the, the sheer scale of it, which is massive. And it says with this celebration that the like of it hadn't been seen for centuries. Again, God doing something widely and quickly. So a common theme runs through those accounts, a time of national decline, spiritual deadness, people turning away from God, the whole situation looking hopeless. God raises up someone who's got a different spirit. That person then takes brave steps, they're different in each case, but brave steps in obedience to God, and then suddenly there's a widespread 
popular response of returning to God with great celebration. Hence the cry, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. Those who prayed those prayers that we looked at, they knew the stories. And they're now living in a time of deadness. And they're saying, oh God, do it again. What we know happened in the past, we want to see it in our day. When you turn into the New Testament, again, there are examples of revival. I guess one that maybe we wouldn't think of, but the the story of John the Baptist is a pretty clear example of revival. Because we read of John the Baptist that he's a man sent from God, and we read that all Judea went out to him. He's there, out in the desert. He's preaching about repentance, prepare the way of the Lord. And the whole all cities, people are streaming out to, to, to listen to John the Baptist. It's remarkable what happened in his day. If you turn into the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul arrived in Ephesus, there were people there who only knew about John the Baptist. They didn't know about Jesus. They knew about John the Baptist. What happened with John the Baptist really had a far greater impact in terms of sheer numbers than the ministry of Jesus. So there's an example again of God suddenly intervening. There had been 430 years without any prophetic voice. Nothing had been heard from heaven for generations. And then John comes saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Suddenly things change. But then as we move on, I guess the most dramatic story has got to be what happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, people who write about revival argue amongst themselves about whether what happened on the day of Pentecost can legitimately be called revival. Because revival is when God's people get revived, when the church gets revived. What was happening on the day of Pentecost was the church being launched. It, it, it hadn't sort of declined, it hadn't existed previously. Uh, But nonetheless, apart from that detail, what happens on the day of Pentecost has many of the characteristics of revival. You know the story. People are praying. The apostles and the, the whole group of disciples are devoting themselves to prayer. And then when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place And then you get this word that is a feature of revival, suddenly. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. People praying, a sudden intervention, frightening intervention, a strange manifestation, the A sound like the blowing of a violent wind. It doesn't say that there was a violent wind, but it sounded like it's a sudden roar fills the building. And not only that, fire. They they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each other. It's terrifying, but suddenly this happens. They're filled with the Spirit. And as the Spirit comes on them, they start speaking in tongues, and you know what happened. Crowds gather, 3,000 people added to their number in one day. So they're doing what they normally do, they're praying. 
suddenly, unplanned, not programmed by them, by them, God comes, and God coming on them immediately affects their location. And thousands swept into God's kingdom in a day, and then it runs on. It wasn't just an isolated thing. God adding to the church daily those who are being saved. The city is impacted by what happens on that day. And there's powerful preaching, an unusual conviction of sin. People crying out, what must we do? God has come. Then as the book of Acts goes on, in chapter 8, you read of that scattering out of Jerusalem and the camera, as it were, zooms in on one man, Philip, who goes down to Samaria. He goes to a city in Samaria, proclaimed Christ there. The crowds heard Philip, saw miraculous signs. With shrieks, evil spirits are coming up. Many paralytics and cripples were healed. And then it says, there was great joy in that city. One man moving into a place and suddenly God is impacting a city. There's revival happening. And of course the backdrop to all of that, and Peter draws attention to it when he's preaching in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, it's, uh, the backdrop is Joel's prophecy from Joel 2. Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. There's the promise. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, says, this is it. So what Peter is saying is, we are now living in the last days. And a promise for the last days is, I will pour out my spirit. So the last days began with the day of Pentecost, and they are the days in which we are living. And so there's a promise for the days in which we are living. God says, I will pour out my spirit. I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. It says, blood, fire, billows of smoke. We are living then, in a time of the outpoured spirit. Can we legitimately expect anything like that that we read about on the day of Pentecost? Can we legitimately expect anything like that which Philip experienced in Samaria? Can we legitimately expect anything like those stories in the Old Testament when suddenly God changes the whole state of the nation through what seem almost relatively insignificant events. Well, of course, these are not isolated stories because down through history, there are accounts of revival in many, many nations. And It was difficult really preparing for tonight, just uh, immersing myself in stories to think how many of them can I share with you. Um, And uh, I would, well, I'd just love to spend the rest of the night really just uh, roaming through those stories because they are just wonderful. But I thought I would home in on the British Isles. It's maybe helpful for us to see what has happened in our nation 
maybe in places that we know, because when we hear what God has done in our nation in relatively recent history, maybe that will stimulate some faith and cause us to pray, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Oh, Lord, renew them in our day. So what's happened? Well, in the 18th century, this is going back a bit, of course, but in the 18th century, there was an amazing century of revival. I've said all revivals come to an end, sometimes quite quickly. But in the 18th century, as far as I'm aware, what happened then was unique in church history because it lasted for the best part of 100 years. And it's a century of revival that's got a number of really significant things associated with it. Obviously, the key players, people that we we are probably all aware of, people like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. But they are by no means the only ones. In Wales, there was Daniel Rowland and Howell Harris. And intriguingly, though there was no connection between them, George Whitfield in in England, in Gloucester, as it happens, Howell Harris in Wales were both sovereignly saved on the same day in places wide apart from each other. It's like God calls these two people to himself on the same day and launches them then into ministry. You think, this is God. There was others, William Grimshaw of Haworth here in Yorkshire. The stories of Grimshaw are wonderful. Uh, Then there's others, John Newton, William Romain, Henry Venn, other names that you can encounter in the stories. But when you read their stories, you read of them preaching in the open air to crowds sometimes of 20,000. Remember, PA hadn't been invented. Here I am in this little building relying on a microphone, and they preached in the open air to 20,000. It said of, of, of Whitfield that when he was preaching, he was standing by a river, the, uh, just the, the, the winds kind of blew his voice down the water and people a long way away could hear him preaching. How they did it, I don't know, but they did. Crowds, vast crowds gathered and thousands were added to the churches. It was a time of great decline. The churches were dead, Generally speaking, uh, the prevailing attitude, without getting into anything uh, too technical, the prevailing belief was what, was what is called deism. That is to say, a belief in God, but a distant God. A God who has, as it were, created the world, set it in motion, and then stood back from it. So there was absolutely no belief in relationship with God. God was not a God to relate with. He was, he was outside the machine. He had set the thing working, and then he was not involved. And so there was no sense of relationship with God, no sense then of the value of prayer, certainly no sense of being born again, but just dead, arid intellectualism. Uh, and the Church of England particularly was in an appalling state with absentee clergy, Uh, a lot of gambling and uh, drunkenness and so on. And it was in that setting that God suddenly, as it were, sovereignly said, I'm going to work. And you get Wesley and Whitfield, both in the Church of England, as were many of the others, like Newton, Romain and Venn. 
Daniel Rowland and Howell Harris, uh, not in Wales, of course. But God sovereignly raising up people all over the nation, preaching Christ and seeing thousands saved. And society was transformed. The abolition of slavery, of course, was going to follow on from this, but it it started in this revival. Missionary organizations came into being as a result of this revival. And some historians draw attention to the fact that in mainland Europe, the French Revolution was happening. The story of that revolution was reaching these shores and there were radical people who wanted to see a similar thing happening here to break up the corruption of the aristocracy and so on. And there was quite a yearning for revolution here. And then revival came. And historians say, in France, revolution. In Great Britain, revival. And we were spared revolution because God broke in in power and changed the nation. We also should note that that didn't happen easily, that Wesley and his followers particularly endured savage persecution, and there was widespread opposition and derision, but nonetheless, God changed the nation. And that revival just went on and on for the best part of the 18th century. In 1858, now into the next late uh, or mid-19th century. In 1858, 1859, and then through the 1860s, we have what is called the Second Evangelical Awakening. That can be traced back to things happening uh, in 1857 in Canada and then into the United States of America. What was happening there, news of it then reached Northern Ireland in 1858, and into Wales in 1859. In that move, which as I say is known as the Second Evangelical Awakening, it's reckoned that in Northern Ireland about 100,000 got added to the churches, and a similar number, 100,000, added to the churches in Wales. And in Wales, that 100,000 represented about a tenth of the population a very significant work that just suddenly happened. And if you read the accounts, and there are many of them that have been published, you can uh, hear of thousands gathering kind of spontaneously for preaching and to pray. What was happening in North America, the news of it was reaching this country and people were gathering together. They were hearing of what was happening in North America, discussing Could something like that happen here? And beginning to pray that what they were hearing about would happen here. And then God began to move. And people gathered sometimes from early morning until past midnight, just seeking God and praying. And God broke in in 1858, 1859. And just some accounts from what was happening in in Wales, first of all, in Anglesey, Contemporary newspaper accounts spoke of Anglesey being on fire from sea to sea. Hundreds were added to the churches in Anglesey. In many places in Wales, the most significant outbreaks of God's power were in children's prayer meetings. Children gathering together to pray, 
God reviving them, and then those children being used to bring revival to the adults. There are lots of accounts of that happening. It's remarkable. Prayer meetings were happening in the mines in South Wales, in the slate quarries in North Wales. There was one point at which Queen Victoria was visiting North Wales and people were given a day off work and tens of thousands just gathered in the slate quarries to seek God. They weren't interested in Queen Victoria. It was a day off. They were going to pray. They wanted to seek God. God doing amazing things. In England, in London, C.H. Spurgeon was preaching to thousands. And if you know the story of Spurgeon, he had, uh, had to... Uh, move out of his church building into great open uh, theatres and so on. The like it never happened before, but he's preaching to tens of thousands in 1859. And that year, he spoke of times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. In London, theatres on a Sunday were not, uh, they were closed um, uh, and uh, because plays weren't allowed on the Lord's Day, the Christians moved into the theatres uh, all across London to pray and to seek God. Here in Sheffield, in 1860, the Theatre Royal, which stands roughly where the crucible does now, uh, was open for public worship. And on March the 11th, 1860, at the Theatre Royal in Sheffield, 3,000 people crowded into that theatre. Hundreds were left outside. And the word of God was being preached. Grown men, apparently, were moved to tears of repentance. The next Sunday, similar number gathered. Hundreds were saved. Revival has happened here in Sheffield, just uh, in 1860. Over that decade, the the 1860s, it is reckoned that 650,000 were added to English churches. 650,000. If you go around looking particularly at non-conformist church buildings, often they'll have the date engraved in the stonework of when that building was opened, and you'll find many of them are dates in the 1860s. All over. God moving phenomenally. Sadly, of course, many of those buildings are now redundant. The tide has gone out again. But the tide came in, in that second evangelical awakening. God doing remarkable things in our nation. Into the 20th century and the early years of the 20th century, again in North America the beginnings of what is now known as the Pentecostal movement was happening in Azusa Street. Probably connected with that, in 1904 and 1905, revival came to Wales again. There was a young miner by the name of Evan Roberts in uh, Blynanach in South Wales. God met powerfully with him. Two months later, he's preaching in Gorsinan in South Wales, and a contemporary account says many were prostrated with conviction. Others cried for mercy. Many rejoiced as they were filled with the Spirit. Some cried out, no more, Lord Jesus, or I die. And an unusual feature of that revival, the 1945 revival, was the fact that God was moving powerfully even when there was no preaching. There was a lot of singing, not a lot of preaching. 
Significantly, that revival didn't last, just 1904-1905. Other revivals in the 1920s, there was a revival on the East Coast around Lowestoft, and again, remarkable things happening there. Perhaps the most well-known revival is in the uh, late 1940s, in 1949 through to 1952, out in the Hebrides. That's a move that is particularly associated with a preacher by the name of Duncan Campbell. And it began, as far as we can see, with a group of men who were praying in a barn. Yet us meeting there to pray. And in the course of one of those meetings, there's a young man there who reads part of Psalm 24, which says, uh, in the authorized version this is, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord. Then this young man lifted his hands towards heaven and cried, O God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And then he fell on the ground. At that point, an awareness of God filled the barn and supernatural power was let loose all over the Hebrides. And again, accounts speak of the awful presence of God that brought a wave of conviction of sin that caused even mature Christians to feel their sinfulness bringing groans of distress in the meetings, prayers of repentance from unconverted, strong men, we read, bowed under the weight of sin. Cries for mercy were mingled with shouts of joy from others who had been saved. And within days, neighborhoods powerfully affected, powerfully awakened. That's in the mid-20th century. Revivals are not all in distant places, And in distant centuries, just in the last century, God has moved in revival in this nation. There are features common to all of those. Well, obviously obviously no two revivals are identical. They've all got their own characteristics. Some have a lot of physical phenomena with people falling on the ground and so on. Others, there's an absence of that. But there are some things that seem to be common to them all. And I'm just going to uh, run through some of those common characteristics. First of all, prayer. No amount of prayer will automatically bring a revival. There are people who say that if everyone would pray and if all churches would get together and pray, inevitably revival will come. Well, the evidence doesn't seem to be that that is the case. We can't make it happen. But... In all of these cases, they can be traced back to people praying. Sometimes just one or two. A group of men in a barn in the Hebrides or whatever, but people pray. And that seems then to become a feature of ongoing revival. Part of the revival, the awakening of God's people, is they just pray. And certainly that's the case in the book of Acts. Jesus has ascended, they pray. They just gather all the time to pray. No one's telling them to. No one's trying to persuade them to come to a prayer meeting. Suddenly, they're awakened. And when you're awakened, you pray. The sign of God working amongst his people and reviving them is 
They want to pray. Normally what has happened in those revivals is when communities hear of revival happening somewhere else, then there is a sense of urgency. We need to pray. And the kind of prayers of which we read in those early stages before revival comes is the kind of prayer, Lord, don't pass us by. They hear of what's happening elsewhere. Say, oh God, do it here. So people start praying. And hymns get written. And in the old hymn books, you'll find so many hymns that are like that. Lord, while on others thou art calling, do not pass us by. And so on. But great heart cry, Lord, you're working in other places, do it here. In many ways, the story of Elijah in the Old Testament illustrates that. Elijah, Elijah, as you know, the story in 1 Kings 17 and onwards, believes that the land which has endured years of drought in response to his prophetic word is that that land is about to have rain again. And that drought and rain are kind of symbols of a need of revival and revival coming. So hence we sing songs about, Lord, send the rain. It's not that we want it to actually rain outside, but it's a symbol of God moving by his spirit, bringing life into things that are dry and barren. Elijah believes the rain is coming, and he goes, he's there on the top of Mount Carmel, and he prays. He seems to be alone in that. He's got his servant with him. There's Elijah there on the mountaintop. It's like he's the only one who cares, but he's praying. There's one man praying. Ahab, the king, had been there. Elijah says to Ahab, you go and eat and drink. And uh, Ahab is told the rain is coming, but Ahab doesn't say, or I'll join you in prayer. He just goes off to eat and drink. But the rain comes. Elijah prays and prays and prays. And the rain comes. And that much needed rain then comes to bless those who had been unconcerned. Ahab, who just wants to go off to eat and drink, he gets the benefit of it. But it's one man who prays. Uh, Those who lack faith for, for, for rain, lack the concern to pray, Nonetheless, they're swept up in the blessing. And that's what it's like with revival. Some see the need to pray. Some will persevere in prayer. They won't let up, like Elijah, who wouldn't let up. Others just get on with social activity, apparent unconcern, and then God comes. And so people pray. Prayer is a feature of revival. A second feature is suddenness. Revivals, it seems, can't be planned and really can't be predicted. Revival always seems to come unexpectedly, breaking in to the normal program of the church. Acts 2, 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. Isaiah 29 verse 5 says, suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come. And the point, surely, of that suddenness is that it's demonstrating that this is God. It is God breaking in and God doing what he wants to do. And it's not something that originates in any human plan. 
God is seen to be God. And revival is when God's people wake up to the fact that God is God. Revival, of course, is something that happens to God's people. And that's the third feature. It is an awakening. It is a reviving. It happens to the church. Revival is... Revival is not something that happens to unbelievers. Revival is what happens to God's people. God's people get woken up out of sleep. It's like there are times when God's people just become accustomed to normal Christian behavior, Christian programs, and they kind of doze off. And so, yes, they come to church, they support everything, but spiritually, it's like sleepwalking. And then God comes and wakes the church up to be what it's supposed to be. And that coming of God, that awakening of God's people, then has a spontaneous impact on the surrounding area. So that people with no thought of God are spontaneously and suddenly deeply aware of sin, convicted of sin, desperate to find help. And that's the fascinating thing about revival. Normally, if we want to see people saved, we've got to get out there, we've got to evangelize and so on, and of course we have to do that. What happens in revival is that there is such a presence of God that people become aware of holiness and become aware of judgment. Duncan Campbell, uh, the key player in what happened in the Hebrides, defined this whole thing as a community saturated with God. God comes to his people and the community is kind of saturated with God. There's a God awareness everywhere and hence a conviction we need help. Jesus said, of the Holy Spirit, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And so there we see it. The coming of the Spirit to God's people convicts the world. Unbelievers in the near vicinity become aware of their sin because a holy God has come to his people. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. God came in that room, the Spirit of God filling them. They're speaking in tongues. We're not told how the next thing happened, but all we do know is suddenly Peter is addressing crowds. How did the crowd gather? God's doing something, and people get drawn in. Another feature, a strange feature of revival, is contagion. It seems to be the case that revival is contagious. It spreads by personal contact. Not always, but often. What happens is that people visit a scene of revival and get drawn into it so that when they return home, they're carrying the infection. (laughs) God has touched them. And so when they then return, they become the catalyst for revival. That that often happens. Or people who are part of the revival go out from that revival to go and spread the news. But either way, 
it seems to be contagious. Certainly in 1859, the contagion spread from North America to Ulster, to Northern Ireland, and thence to the mainland, to Wales, Scotland, and England. It just happens. It's hard to explain, in fact, impossible to explain. I don't know an explanation for what, why that happens. Some people say, well, it's just mass hysteria. No, it's not. Because we also have examples where revival breaks out spontaneously without any direct link. And certainly in the 1858 revival in North America, there are several instances that are documented of revival happening in a, maybe a, a port. And as ships arrive in port, the people on those ships are already in revival. They, they, they come home to the home port where revival is happening. They've heard nothing of it because obviously uh, they didn't have mobile phones or anything. But God is already impacting the people who are out at sea so that when they come home, they've already been touched. It happened in the Hebrides as well, fishing communities. The men folk would be out at sea, not knowing what was happening on land, but they'd arrive home already impacted by the Spirit. Totally spontaneous, sometimes contagious, sometimes totally spontaneous. In both cases, it is God. It is God. Another feature of revival is opposition. Arthur Wallace, who back in the 1950s wrote a, uh, a book that was very important to many people, a book called In the Day of Thy Power, a, a, again, a, a history of revival, an account of revival. He said, if we find a revival that is not spoken against, we'd better look again to ensure that it is a revival. So that it, there is always opposition. And sometimes when we hear people praying for revival, it's almost like people think that revival is like some kind of magic that makes all problems evaporate. Actually, revival brings a whole lot of problems that were not normally there. You see, on the day of Pentecost, our attention can be drawn by the fact that 3,000 people got added to the church in a day. But we mustn't miss the equally significant fact that it says, some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. So there's 3,000 added. There's also people standing around laughing at the whole thing. Some oppose out of sheer malice. Some oppose out of fear or just bewilderment. They can't understand what is happening. Some of the opposition will be in the form of counterfeit manifestations. What Satan can't stop by blatant confrontation, he often tries to undermine by just discrediting it. Discernment is necessary. And then there'll be opposition from unsaved people. People who normally wouldn't give the church a second thought are provoked by revival and often provoked into violent opposition. If you read the accounts of what John Wesley and his followers suffered, it is appalling. John Wesley himself was mobbed, beaten with clubs, 
had his hair pulled out, was threatened with hanging, drowning, and crucifixion. As he stood preaching, people threw dead cats at him. Some of his followers were attacked, killed. There was one, uh, one woman who was part of the Methodist movement, attacked, had a miscarriage as a result of that attack. They suffered terribly. Opposition is stirred up. When a sleeping church gets woken, not everyone likes getting woken up. And so there can be opposition, and it's a feature. And a further inevitable feature of revival is mission. An awakened church, an enlarged church, will become highly motivated to reach other people. People who are woken up to be what God always intended them to be will immediately catch a concern for people who don't know. Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. When the Holy Spirit comes on a church and wakes it up, mission becomes just part of the lifestyle of the church. And in every revival you look at, you see mission coming out of it. A commitment to mission has always been a fruit of revival. So, for us here now, what, if anything, can we expect? Is it reasonable in the 21st century to expect revival in the United Kingdom? Back in 1947, the amazing Bradford plumber with the equally amazing name Smith Wigglesworth, said this, During the next few decades, there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. Remember, this is 1947, he's saying it. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it, and will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is the great revival. But the Lord says, no, neither is this the great revival, but both are steps towards it. When the new church phase is on the wane, there will be evidenced in the churches something that has not been seen before, a coming together of those with an emphasis on the word and those with an emphasis on the spirit. When the word and the spirit come together, there will be the biggest move of the Holy Spirit that the nation and indeed the world has ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores, even the Wesleyan and the Welsh revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's Spirit will flow over from the United Kingdom to the mainland of Europe, and from there will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. That was said in 1947. 
And Smith Wigglesworth then refers to specific things that will happen. The first move, something that will affect every church, he said, that's open to receive it, will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. In the 1960s, that happened. It's known as the charismatic movement. God began to move in churches other than Pentecostal churches, people getting baptized in the Spirit. That happened. The second move of the Holy Spirit, he said, will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches. That happened. And we are in such a church, people moving out and forming new churches that are Bible-based, New Testament church life. It happened. And he said, in each of those, people say, this is revival. Yes, people did say that. And he's saying, no, it isn't. And then he says, when the new church phase is on the wane, then he says, something else is going to happen. I would say, that's roughly where we are. Many of the new church streams have lost their way, turning away from the word of God, getting into all kinds of new things, almost new age, but called charismatic. The thing is on in decline. But he says, at that point, there will be a coming together of word and spirit. Word and spirit should never have been divorced from each other, but of course, historically, That's how it has been. And he says, there'll be a coming together of word and spirit. People who preach the word of God and believe in the power of the spirit. That, he said, will happen. And that, he says, when the word and the spirit come together, the biggest movement of the Holy Spirit that the nation and indeed the world has ever seen. Was he right? Well, he's been right on some of those things. And we're at the point now of seeing, is he right on that last one? We are part of a movement that believes in word and spirit, that you cannot separate them. We believe passionately in the preaching and the exposition of God's word and not just being open to the spirit, but actively seeking the spirit. Are we at the threshold of what Smith Wigglesworth saw back in 1947. Are we in the outworking of that prophecy right now? Every revival that has ever happened obviously takes place within a context, and the context in which it takes place shapes that revival. So we're not looking for a repeat of what happened in the Hebrides that was very much influenced by its context. We're not looking for a repetition of what happened in Wales, again, very much influenced by its context. Of course, there have been other revivals like Pensacola in the 1990s, again, very much in a context of American Pentecostalism, a genuine move of God, but affected by its context. We want to see what revival looks like in our context. We want to see what revival looks like in a context of grace, a context that values worshiping God, preaching, the gifts of the Spirit, the involvement of children. In fact, New Testament-style church, really. We want to see what it looks like. We know what it looked like on the day of Pentecost, but that was then, In Jerusalem, we're not in Jerusalem, we're not in a Jewish context. We want to see what 
will revival look like? We're not, in other words, wanting to see a repetition of anything that happened in the past. They were particular to those settings. We want to see what God wants to do now. In the United Kingdom, right at the start of the 21st century, we also need to be aware that revival must never be an end in itself. We pray, oh God, revive us. But revivals normally come to an end. Apart from, of course, the 18th century, it lasted for 100 years. Maybe the next revival will not come to an end. It will be ended by the return of Jesus Christ. But our vision is not revival. It's for the church to be built. Jesus said, I will build my church. We long to see a glorious church. We long to see the church woken up to be what God always wanted it to be. And for the church to be built in any significant society-changing way, we need revival. Just growing at the rate we and other churches like us are growing is never going to impact the nation. We need God to do something dramatic. And there is no reason to believe that revivals only belong to the past or belong in other nations. God promised an outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. And certainly now the conditions are ripe for reviving. We're in a nation that has rejected God with what seems like almost a single-minded enthusiasm to eradicate any knowledge of God. The church scene, pretty depressing, really. I don't mean here, but generally. The church may be strong on social issues, entertainment, and so on, but pretty low on holiness and faith and commitment. But it's when things look hopeless that God has worked in the past... Things could hardly have been more hopeless in the 18th century than when Wesley, Whitfield, and all the others came on the scene. I would have said things look pretty hopeless now. Not only hopeless on the church scene, but society itself is crumbling. Can we believe that God could suddenly, while we're doing just what we normally do, God suddenly comes. And change then comes as God comes to his people. The promises the Lord you're looking for will suddenly come to his temple. Can we believe that God will suddenly break in? Will we pray for it? Will we pray for change and say, Lord, we've heard of what you've done. Do it again in our day. I guess this subject has been a passion with me for over 40 years. As many of you know, I went to university in Wales and that was where I first heard stories of revival. I didn't, never heard the word before. And then started reading stories And just seeing the context where God had worked. And then, since that, well, then started praying. When I then moved back to London, I encountered uh, a, a movement called Knights of Prayer for Revival. 
And once a month on a Friday evening, people gathered in a, a, a church building in London, in Portman Square, to pray right through the night for revival. Since then, involved with many people praying for revival. Sometimes in those co- in contexts, you feel God's about to do it. And then, yeah, we've seen things. The charismatic movement, the whole Toronto thing, what happened in Pensacola. God moving, but short of revival. And so, for 40 years or more, I've been in, gripped by this subject. Sometimes it seemed, oh, we're almost there but not. I tell you, I am still passionate about this subject. When I see what's happening around us, then see the promises of God, I think surely, surely, God can't just let this drift on and on into gradual decline. Surely, he is going to suddenly come and our longings and our prayers are going to be met. That's why we pray That's why we have a prayer meeting, not just because churches ought to, but, oh God, we've heard of what you've done. Lord, renew it in our day. I'm just going to pray, and then if questions have been texted in, I'll attempt to answer them. But let's just pray. Father, we were hearing this morning how awesome you are, what it means to live in your fear. And Lord, we hear those words, but we have little concept of what it really means because we're so used to things being how they are. And there is so rarely any, anything that actually causes us to tremble. And Lord, you see how casual we can be and Lord, how, how just ordinary things are. And we say, oh God, oh God, break into our closed little world. Oh God, show your power. Stretch out your hand. Show yourself to be God. Lord, wake your people up, I pray. Wake me up, oh God, to a realization of who you are. Wake your people up, Oh God, to understand you and to know you and to fear you and to love you, to rejoice in you. Oh God, let life come to your people again. And oh God, let there be a fallout into our city, into our nation. Lord, we cry to you. Lord, here in 2009, will you revive your church? Oh God. Oh God, as people just sneer at the church, regard it as belonging to a bygone age. Oh God, Lord, enemies have trampled your sanctuary, as it were. Now, Lord, we say, arise. Lord, we've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, renew them in our day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there are questions, I will attempt to answer them. <laughs> Just a couple um, so far. Um, someone's asked, how have you stayed passionate in seeking revival? How can you? How have you stayed passionate in seeking it? How can you stay passionate? 
And, you know, after 40 years, trying to seek, want, seeking it, looking for it, have you, how have you managed to stay passionate in that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I just have done. <laughs> um, if there's something that you believe in and something that is on the horizon or over the horizon and you believe in it but you haven't seen it, you stay passionate because you want to see it. Um, plus, I would have imagined that the spirit who brings revival is the spirit who conveys the passion. And if you're hungry and thirsty for God, you want to see more of God. And so for any of us, surely, as we are filled with the spirit, we long for more. And Jesus said, uh, that we are to hunger and thirst and for righteousness and to uh, if we're and and it's those who are filled so you know, you've seen something you've you've got the concept you've heard the stories but you haven't actually, actually well there have been tantalizing glimpses i mary and i went to pensacola back in the 1990s there was revival happening there we saw and felt the presence of god we were in a place where you I think I've referred to it before, but it's it's hard to convey it. But the the tangible presence of God, so that people came in to scoff or even to attack the preacher. And there he's on the platform, and either side of him in the platform party, there are guys in suits. Well, they all had suits, but some of them had kind of curious bulges in their suits. And you notice that when every eye was closed, they didn't close their eyes, and they're just looking around, because their people came there uh, to do the preacher in. Uh, But people came with that kind of motive, and God hit them, and they just repented. And you had just amazing stories. And when you see that kind of thing, and one night we were able to sit quite near the front, and we were right there as people are coming forward, and you just heard this kind of low moaning as people are just weeping over their sin all around the front. God's presence. They think, oh God, this is a little taste. Lord, I want to see it. I want to see it in the United Kingdom and I want to see it spread. How do you stay passionate? Well, when there's something you long for and you've never seen it, you can't let go of it, really. Sorry, don't know if that answers it. (laughs) That's good. Um. Why should we pray for revivals specifically rather than for just salvation in general or for God's kingdom coming? Revival includes all of that. Um, I guess revival is a term that is used. God's kingdom coming in power would be revival. Um, We want to see people saved, but if we want to see people saved in large numbers where the church is kind of energized and motivated, that's revival. So seeing people saved, evangelism, there's a difference between evangelism and revival. Evangelism is something that we do. Revival is something that God does. We are commanded to go and preach the gospel. Evangelism is not optional. That is what we're told to do, but it is something that we do. Revival is when God does something so that we're carrying the presence of God. So instead of just, uh, you know, the sort of stuff that we say quite rightly in evangelism, we're trying to persuade people, trying to interest people. 
And sometimes people just don't want to know. In revival, there's something of the presence of God, so they are convicted as we speak. It's, it's God doing something. So the kingdom of God coming in power, yeah, that's revival. Um, evangelism is part of revival, but revival just brings something that we can't produce. That was it for questions. Mm. But Ginny's got something she'd like mm. to bring. So I think it would be good to do that. Mm. Yeah. Um, I just couldn't sit there and listen to all that and not share this really because it just feels to me and it has felt to me for a while that we are very near revival in the UK. Um, in 1973, which wasn't long after I became a Christian, I became a Christian when the charismatic movement was just kind of hitting the churches in Sheffield. Um, whilst praying about being baptised in the Spirit, which incidentally I wasn't that night, but... Um, what did happen to me was I, I had an amazing vision that's just impacted me and powered me and everything else I've done since, I think. Um, and this vision was like I kind of came up and saw like an aerial bird's eye view of the UK, as if I'm looking down at a map of the UK. And um, as I looked... Um, it was kind of like a kind of dull day, sort of light quality. And as I looked down, I could see these pinpricks of light all across the map. And as I looked, the pinpricks were growing brighter and brighter. And also the light quality was dimming down and it was becoming dusk. And the light... As the light kind of went down, these pinpricks were burning brighter and I realised I was looking at fires. Up and down the UK, there were fires in different places. And the more I looked, the more I saw... Um, it was like the light was going darker and darker. The more I saw these fires burning brightly and then all of a sudden it was like there was this kind of whoosh, like what happens with fire where it suddenly all went up together and it went simultaneously up and down the whole map and it was just totally on fire. And um, back then, <laughs> I just knew I'd seen something that impacted me enormously and I asked God what it meant and I felt that he said to me that the fires was the churches in the UK and that one day they would burn so brightly it would be like the whole UK would be on fire. And, I, and he said to me, I'm going to get, you are going to see, he said to me, you're going to see this in your lifetime. And I'm going to give you two signs um, of these fires. And the first sign is to show you that this is from me. Don't forget, I'm a new Christian and I wasn't baptized in the Spirit, so this is all. And the second sign is to say that, it's, that what you're going to see is imminent. So as you do, you get up from that. I've kind of condensed it a bit, but you get up from a thing like that and you think, right, tomorrow I'll see the sign. <laughs> and um, that was 
actually it was March, this, it was this month, 36 years ago that, and I kind of looked the following week and following two weeks and a month went past and two months went past and I wondered when I'd see this sign that said this was from God and actually um, four years went past until I got to 1977 and from time to time I, I, I did pray about seeing this that I mean I would call revival now but I didn't know it was called that then I kept praying about it and it kind of receded a bit because it didn't happen. And then in 1977, I was watching the TV because we were celebrating the Queen's Silver Jubilee. And they went up in a helicopter and they showed you bonfires on all the hills. The Queen had started off a bonfire somewhere and another one was lit and another one was lit. And it showed you on the TV an aerial map of Britain covered in these fires. And I just kind of had that hair on the back of your neck standing up feeling that I was seeing the sign that said this was from God. And I kind of, um, kind of thought, oh, I'm going to see, I'm going to see the second sign that says that the thing is imminent. And um, I waited months and I waited a year and I waited two years and four years and six years and ten years. I actually waited till 1995. And in 1995, we had the 50th celebration of D-Day or VE Day or something. I even forgot what it was to celebrate. It was 50 years from VE Day, I think. And a committee was set up to make these beacons on every hill. And once again, on the TV, I saw an aerial view from a helicopter going up and down, showing you the bonfires on all the hills. It was just amazing. And... What hit me then was what God showed me in 1973 is imminent. And of course, imminent with God. <laughs> it took me all that time to see the two signs. But there's another twist to the story in that in 1995, the committee that was set up to light those fires, um, this, the main guy that some of you may have heard of is called Bruno. <laughs> And he does all those kind of light the fires with the queen or set the fireworks off with the queen and all this stuff. And his right-hand man at the time was called George. How do I know this? Um, well, um, just before we left Freedom Road uh, in, in the year 2000, um, I'd been praying about all this again. When is it? When is it? It's supposed to be imminent. Lord, revive us. Lord, do this. Lord, set your church on fire. And I was feeling pretty low because, it, you know, how do you persevere? Somebody said to Arnold through 40 years, how do you persevere? Well, sometimes it is hard because sometimes it seems as though it's never going to happen. And I was having one of them days. <laughs> and I kind of said, oh, God, 
I really need some encouragement from you. I really need to hear you again on this. And this was a Saturday night. And the following day, I went to church uh, when we were at Freedom Road. And um, in the middle of a survey, in the middle of the worship time, somebody came to fetch me and said, there's a man outside looking for you. And the man outside was called George. And um, he lives in Salisbury. And he'd travelled up to Leeds for a few days to do with work. And he was on his way back to Salisbury. And George is a Christian. And not only that, but George believes in the prophetic. And he believes that one day revival will hit the UK. And George is Bruno's right-hand man on this committee. And um, he'd read of the prophecy that I brought that everybody calls the Diana prophecy. And um, he'd prayed much about it. But on his way back from work from Leeds that day, he suddenly felt constrained by God that he had to find me. And all he knew was that I lived in Sheffield and went to this church called Walkley Baptist Church, which, of course, by then had become City Church. Um, And he just pulled off the motorway when he got level with Sheffield. And he just took, he'd never been into Sheffield before, but he just took the route that he felt he should take, and he wound up outside Freedom Road building in the middle of our worship service, asking for me. And I got to the door, and he introduced himself, and he told me all this, and he said, I've just come to tell you that God wants to encourage you in what you've been hearing from him. He was just so miraculous. Um, And then in 2007, at um, the October prayer and fasting that the leaders go to, I just, again, had this incredible sense of the imminence of what God's going to do. And also in that I saw him doing that in a time where it had got very dark. And I, I just felt the impact of the darkness coming and the difficulty um, that the nation was going to start going through and inevitably the church would start going through. But I could see again something of that revival that was going to hit the UK. And so I just want to encourage you that I think what Arnold's talking on tonight is not just a topic, but it's pertinent to where we are now as a church, as the church, and as this nation, as Christians in this nation, because it is imminent. And I don't know what imminent means with God, but I do know that he told me in 73 I would see it in my lifetime. Now, hopefully I've got a bit longer yet. But I just feel constrained to say, let us pray for revival. Let us have that sense of urgency that this is to be um, because God does want to see something different in our nation.